This is Radio Influence. This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders on Radio Influence. Every episode of the MMA Insiders podcast, I try to bring you something different on this episode. I am going to be joined by Casey Oxendine. Maybe you know Casey, or maybe you don't, but Casey offers a unique insight into mixed martial arts as he is involved in several aspects of this sport. Casey and I are going to touch on some of the hottest topics in the sport of mixed martial arts. I plan to discuss such topics as weight cutting, regional MMA, team MMA battle, and the current state of mixed martial arts. Now, before I bring in Casey... I want to let you know about my sponsor, Fight TV. The Fight app is your wrestling, MMA, and boxing TV. Watch live pay-per-views and free programming on your own schedule. Coming up this week on Fight, you can order Knockout Promotions 54 and Hard Knocks 54. Both those events are on Friday. And for my international listeners, World Series of Fighting on 35 on Saturday night will be available on Fight for $9.99. You can download the Fight app today by going to Fight, F-I-T-E, dot tv forward slash radio influence forward slash once again that is fight f-i-t-e dot tv forward slash radio influence forward slash and that link is also available on radioinfluence.com. of course radio influence is one of the places that you can listen to this podcast also available itunes stitcher tune in radio be sure to subscribe rate and review this podcast casey i appreciate you coming on the podcast this week for uh my listeners who maybe don't know your involvement in the sport kind of give us a, a very quick uh you know history of your involvement in mma man i've been around for 20 years uh in this sport um started as a as a grappling fighter a fighter um i went on to be a coach i've you know coached some uh some some top names in the sport and went on to to be a, um, a promoter a commentator uh, I, I believe I, I bring a pretty unique perspective because you know as, as far as commentary because you, you don't have a lot of guys who have been a fighter and a coach and can speak you know to uh, you know and, and can verbalize it um, I see it from from all of those angles, and uh, you know, I originally started, uh, you know, in the '90s. I trained with Marco Huas, who was one of the original UFC legends, uh, the king of the streets, and um, you know, that was a guy back in the day who was, you know, roughing up guys like Boss Rutten and Mark Kerr and and, and John McCarthy, and uh, so any of those guys will tell you what a what training with that guy was like, and you know, he really he improved my bravery. I'm also a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under Helio Seneca, who is preparing to face off in a legends rematch at Abu Dhabi against Megaton Diaz, of course, the father of Mackenzie Dern. And, um, you know, so, uh, I, I, you know, that that's what I do. Uh, of course, I also promote, you know, I've promoted, you know, 20-plus mixed martial arts bouts, uh, promoted the first mixed martial arts uh, sanctioned bout in the state of Tennessee, and then uh, it feels like um, history is repeating itself. I'm, uh, you know, I promoted the first team-based um, fighting event uh, in originally uh, arena combat, and now team MMA battle. So, uh, and and of course, I, I'm a commentator for Valor fights, uh, among other events. But you know, very uh, consistent with Valor fights. I work a lot with Tim Loy there, and you know, just uh, I, I'm a lover of everything combat sports. 
And, of course, you and Tim do the Valor Hour, which is here on RadioInfluence.com. comes out every uh, late Wednesday, early Thursday morning. You can check out that. They've already done two episodes. They're getting you ready for uh, this week's Valor Fights 41. And, and I'll tell you, quickly talk about a little bit about, about Valor Fights 41. The way Chris Wright knows how to promote a fight, man, it's got me interested. If I wasn't taking a couple of days off, uh, I would probably be uh, tuning in on Saturday night just to see kind of how that matchup goes down. Chris Wright has always been a tremendous voice. You know, he, he knows how to hype a fight, and he's always been tremendously tough. He's run across some tough, um, some tough matchups. He, he would always fight anybody. He even stepped up and fought Nate Landwehr, you know, and, and he's you know, naturally you know, 15, 20 pounds lighter than Landwehr, and, and Landwehr's a, you know, a train, literally. Uh, you know, I remember him stepping up to fight him, and he didn't you know, back down an, an inch. The losses that he's taken are um, – you know, are all justifiable losses. Dylan Kala, I'm, I'm very, very familiar with him as well. He is also a freight train. He has a tremendous push. I've seen him absolutely melt guys uh, inside the cage. Uh, you know, tremendously strong, great pressure uh, for you know for that weight. So I think that that main event is is truly a national level main event anywhere you would go. And of course, with Chris Wright training with Rufus Sports now, and he has for the last year or so. I mean, his level uh, of, of competence inside the cage is, is going to be improved tremendously. And I think one of the things that uh, you and Tim, who do the Valor Hour, which I am the, the guy behind uh, producing that uh, that podcast, I think one of the things is because of you know the inner workings of all these fighters that are on these fight cards, you kind of – some stories that ultimately come out on the podcast. And I thought one of the great stories with Chris Wright is how he helped out his teammate, Gerald Mershart, get a fight in, in, in Valor fights against Sid Wheeler. And, of course, we all know you know Gerald, Gerald's one of those guys that I think a lot of people for some time were kind of wondering why he wasn't getting that opportunity maybe uh, in the UFC. Of course, now he's in the UFC, he's just wrecking fools. But I thought that was a great story hearing that Chris Wright out there you know, calling up Tim Loy saying, man, you need to sign my teammate. It's really great to be involved with Fowler Fights because we've seen these instances repeatedly, you know, first with Scott Holtzman and then with Gerald Mearshart, where uh, it's almost like here in the South, college football is such a big deal. And I think that's because People enjoy being there before the fame. You know, they 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 can see what's going on. They're like, man, this guy has tremendous potential. He's going to be a star. Why is he not already a star? And you see that in college football, and then they those uh, those football players move on and, and play in the pros, and they become big stars. And these fans are always like, well, I remember him way back when. And so for me, I really enjoy watching that. And and that was the case, of course, with with Mearshart. You know, Chris Wright is always a team player and this is a guy who will talk the talk for sure but when it comes down to it he's a, a kind individual you know he's, he's a good guy to be around uh, but he knows how to hop a fight and that's a good thing well and you know being you know being a you know promoter commentator being in the gym you know how much this business i mean yes it's all it's ultimately what you do on fight night inside the cage but it's what you do leading up to the fight to get people excited. I, I get a chance to interview all types of fighters, whether it's you know UFC or, or Bellator fighter, or you know, or it's that guy working his way up. Maybe he's fighting in Valor, or he's fighting in you know Shamrock or CSMA or, or many other promotions. You you. Know, 
I can tell as a reporter whether a guy, you know, he has that aspect because I think that either you're a good promoter or you're not. I don't think there's a middle between. I think that you're you, you can't manufacture that stuff. You have to be very good. And, and when I hear a guy like Chris Wright talk, I'm like, man, this is a guy who gets it. You know, one of the guys that's on this fight card, uh, Thomas Woolley, was another guy that I've had a chance to talk to, and I was like, man, this kid gets it. I go, you know what? He's got that aspect of knowing how to promote a fight. Ultimately, it's about what can you do on fight night, and that's what. And and sometimes, I mean, you know, I, I think there's two sides of MMA. There, there's the MMA we see on FS1 and pay per view and Spike, but then there's the other side of MMA, which is all these regional shows where I say you got to go out and support these shows because without these regional shows, this business isn't going to thrive. I was at a local show a couple of weeks ago, Casey, and I'll tell you, attendance was pretty bad, and I, and I was sitting there as someone who who kind of you know feels like he's pretty smart when it comes to the business side of MMA, and I'm sitting there going, man, you look at how much it costs to rent this building and all the expenses you had. They, they were streaming uh, internet pay-per-view, and there's not a lot of people in the in the butts in the seats, especially in the, the higher price seats, not the general admission seats. I'm like, man, how are they? How, how is this show turning a profit? That's, that's very true, and you're seeing more and more – that promoters are being weeded out. There are a lot of guys that roll in and, and they may get their retirement check and they decide that they want to be an MMA promoter and they, they think it's going to be a cash cow and that, that couldn't <laughs> be further from the truth. Man, they see it and they're like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to create my own UFC. And you know, and then what they create is a money pit because they, it, there are so many components that are, that are very, you know, so crucial. Um, that's one thing that Tim Lloyd does, and I think we we spoke briefly about it. He does it better than anybody I've ever met with the the um, the things that he has at his hands. You know, it, it, if you're the UFC or the or Bellator, and you you know you've got a, a huge cash cow behind you pushing you. It's one thing when you are a grassroots promotion, you've got to be very very calculated, and that's what Tim does. And and for him to travel from area to area, region to region, and be able to use the the regional talent the way he does and turn profit every single time is, is very impressive. And you, again, you're going to see a lot of, of those regional promoters dropping out and, and you know the, the cream will rise to the top and these other promoters will continue to grow into those regions. And, and oftentimes you'll see the former promoter come on as, as an assistant almost – uh, you know, in that, and you know, I don't know if, if how familiar you are with um, uh, David Oblas and and uh, and his promotion, but they actually just took over uh, U.S. Freedom Fighter and Scott mm -hmm. Price. Now Scott Price is kind of working with David Oblas, and you know that's um, that that you see that a whole lot. You know, guys trying to maybe combine their their efforts to work, but but like I said, um, and I'm a promoter myself of 20 plus you know mixed martial arts events even before I, I did Team MMA Battle. And, um, you know, to do this day in and day out and put your ass on the line, that's your family's money. You know, that's what, how you feed your family. And you put that money up just like, you, you know, if, if you laid it down on a, on a horse bet, you know, you better know what you're doing. And, uh, and Tim does. And so, you know, props and kudos to him. Again, to me, the, the best matchmaker uh, in the United States right now. Yeah, it's there's so many aspects of regional MMA, and sometimes like I, I go to some local shows, and I was at a show probably about eight months ago where by the time the main event started, the building was three quarters empty, and and I was there with a buddy of mine, and I looked at him, and he goes, "Why is why is this happening?" I go. 
because the major ticket sellers fought earlier in the night and they did and I go the promoter made a huge mistake by having them fight early on in the night because ultimately you you want to keep those fans around especially if you're getting any kind of the concession stands because uh, let's be honest about it, people go to fights and you know they're joy- they're they're enjoying some adult cocktails you know so yeah. if if you got a cut of that but uh you know, and and the other thing is with Regional May, it's a great way to find out you know who are the next rising guys. You know who are who are the guys and gals that you need to be paying attention to. You know, and, and you know, and the other thing is is, and I think there's some promoters out there that that look as getting a, some type of broadcast deal is kind of the end game. And I'm like, man, that can't be the end game. The end game's got to be about making money. Because you know, it, it's not like there's a, a ton of money out there in broadcasting for MMA at this point. Right, and it's peaks and valleys. You you have you know great great turnouts, and you have lousy ones. Is it football season? You know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, another thing that people don't don't focus on is is venue. You know, acquiring your venue is so such a crucial process. Uh, there you know there are great venues where I live here in the Tri Cities. It's it's a it's a hub for mixed martial arts. You really you know a, a lot of of. Uh, um, of fighters that that have tremendous fan bases, but it's difficult to come in here because we have these uh, arenas that you know they they've got these these uh, these other types of events that come in and pay top dollar. When an MMA show comes in, they want all that, and uh, especially like the you know I hate to to bash on it, but the Marriott type you know convention centers, those guys have all sorts of stuff going on and they're booked solid. So when you come in there and you try to talk about working concessions or, or getting a, a cut of the of the, the beverage, food and beverage, they laugh at you. And yeah. then they tack on, you know, they, they say, Oh, it's gonna be, you know, we'll get we give you the the room for three thousand or three thousand dollars. And then when you go back and you look at all the extra charges because they need their um, their facilities, you know, using their facilities and, and their extra rooms and, and their cleanup crew and all this, and then you look at the tag and it's like, oh, that's ten thousand dollars. You said three thousand dollars is ten thousand dollars, and that that's kind of how it operates. That everything has to be a well-oiled machine. And so when people select, a, I, I was listening to you talk to Tim, and you know, you were asking him about, you know, do you kind of try to pick and choose around the UFC? And it's like it's impossible to do that when you find a great venue that. That's willing to give you a, a, a good deal. You got to jump on it quickly um, because that's that's going to be a, a, a factor of whether you're successful or not. Yeah, I mean, it was great. What I think it was two years ago, the UFC outlined their entire year calendar. So it was, it was great for regional promoters because you could kind of start to see, okay, here's where the pay per views are going to be, whatnot. I mean, you know, I mean, and, and look, not every UFC card is a card that even as someone that, as involved in the sport as I am, I don't get excited. I mean, the card on Saturday with London. I'll watch it on DVR, but I'm not like sitting there going, "Oh my god, I have to watch that fight card." You know, yeah, also, and, and no, I think, ahead. and I think that's where, and I've I've used this, you know, I you know hate to use the the Donald Trump analogy, but I've kind of relayed this to MMA, where I've said the UFC needs to make pay per views great again. You know, because there's too many pay per views where you sit there and say, "Oh my god, that's an unbelievable pay per view." You know, you look at UFC 211 coming up, unbelievable pay per view. A tremendous amount of, of you know value for your dollar, but then you look at UFC 210 and you're essentially going for the most part you're paying sixty bucks to watch one fight. Years ago, every you know when I first came up with this, everybody wanted to be in the UFC, and every UFC fighter you know within our our society within our group knew was was known was a well known character. Everyone, and that's one thing you know we're going to talk about the legends. Uh, the the legends 
you know, that that's one reason why they are. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a viable option because back in the day it was Frank Shamrock, Tito Ortiz. There were, you know, the 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 old, you know, before that the Oleg Tektarovs, the Hoises, the Don Fries, the Mark Coleman's, everyone that was in the UFC because they were only holding, sometimes holding shows once every three or four months. So every one of those legends was a star. Everybody that even fought in the UFC, even if they lost all of their fights, I mean. Tank Abbott lost most of his fights. He was a tremendous star within the the MMA community or NHB community back then. So now it's you know the UFC is they're putting on so many shows they're short on stars. You know, like these guys, there are guys that have winning records in the UFC and nobody has a clue of who they are. And, you know, there are a lot of, you know, reasons for that. You know, maybe that because, you know, Ronda Rousey and uh, Conor McGregor take up all of the, the space. Like Conor McGregor can, you know, step into the restroom and take a shit. And that's going to get more news <laughs> than, than a great knockout sometimes. So, um, you, you know, it, it's it's a uh, it's a different world, and every fighter, like like you mentioned with Chris Wright, every fighter has to learn how to talk, and and that's one thing. You know, with with my post fight interviews, um, the, you know, bringing up guys, I try to to interview as many of the fighters at the events, even on the lower side, you know, even in the dark matches, because the development of those fighters being able to talk is is a major factor, and if they don't start early. Um, they're, they're not going to be the total package that's needed to, to get over in the bigger shows. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I, just as a broadcaster, I know you're in, plus you're always trying to talk to those guys because you're trying to incorporate something they might tell you inside your broadcast. As I, I've got a play by play gig coming up where, you know, I'm basically just trying to, you know, put together various, you know, things that I think are, are going to be good to, to talk to the, those guys. But you mentioned about legend fights, and I think the, the problem will, has become, and, and I think that Bellator, because of what they've done, ultimately is, is you're going to have to commission shop because not every commission is going to okay these fights. That's absolutely true. Every commission, <laughs> trust me, I know about these commissions. Every, uh, every commission is completely different. And, they, uh, you, know, you know, typically speaking, you can go anywhere. I was at the Tennessee Athletic Commission uh, meeting yesterday, and, and the, there was some discussion about, uh, I guess, 35 is the age here where you begin to have to get the neurological exams and so forth. Yeah. Uh, other, other states can go up to 40. Then, you know, you, you fall into other issues like in pro boxing. They, they look at the number of rounds that you fought in your career and, and things like that. I think that, um, you know, it, it, it's going to be challenging. I think the guys that are, are still in great shape. They're going to be able to, you know, like your Randy Couture's, as long as their neurological exams and so forth check out, they're going to be able to do it. You know, Tank Abbott last year, he got, you know, they, they found some serious health issues when, you know, he was supposed to fight on that Your Fight uh, event against yeah. Dan Severn, found some serious health issues. That's, you know, probably a good thing, you know. I mean, the, the testing, the extra testing for these athletes that have been hitting the head over the last 20 years, uh, it's a good idea to, to, you know, to keep them actively testing. So it's a good thing they found that. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I'm interested in, in things like that. You know, I, you know, I, again, I told you, I, I came up with Marco Huas, um, you know, as you know, was, you know, had a lot of work that I did with, 
<laughs> with him back in the day, you know, and you never got to see the Dan Severn versus Marco Huas, you know, or see Boss Rutten back in action, but back in action against another guy that maybe you never got to see him compete against, like a Mark Coleman or something like that, you know. So um, for me, it's very nostalgic. I'm a pro wrestling fan too. So when a lot of these legend matches kind of, you know, they, they sort of brought back, you know, like uh, the, the DVDs of the Road Warriors and, you know, you listen to the podcast of what was really going on back then. When you really look at it, you know, the names in pro wrestling that were really drawing were your Rowdy Roddy Pipers and your Macho Mans and your your Hulk Hogan's far after their prime was over because they were, you know, they were the characters. Tito Ortiz can lose every single fight and he will always be Tito Ortiz. I I tell you, I was at his fight against Shomenko back there in... uh uh, outside of Memphis, I'm trying to think of the town. Yeah, the only pay per view of Bellator. I, I, I ever. can't. Yeah. I can't even think of the town it was in. It was right. It was basically right on the border of Tennessee and Mississippi. Um, and uh, by the way, I had some great barbecue while I was there. I was actually they actually did that event around a uh, a barbecue festival, which was great as being a reporter. You know, get to, to, but I remember when he walked out. I mean, you would have thought he was the champion. I mean, just beloved by the fans, and I am. Every time I hear a fighter say he's done, I'm like, eh, I don't know if I necessarily believe that. But with Tito, I, I think he's done. I, I really do. You never know, and that that's what's so crazy is these you know these fighters have retired over and over again, and you never know if somebody's done until they're dead. Really, you know, I mean, unless they're old and walking on a cane, you know, but, you know, things change in your life. And it's one thing, this is one thing I was thankful for. I'm I'm really a proponent for when it's time to get out, get out. Uh, I, you know, I had, you know, four MMA fights and I was done, uh, you know, in in 26 years old, you know, where we were, um, we didn't have a gym. We didn't have it. And I I focused on developing that, developing fighters and focused on not getting hit in my skull too much, you know, after that. And I I was really, you know, patient about that. Um, you know, that, that I needed to make sure that I was, um, you know, that I, when I got to be 40 years old, like I am now that I still had a brain, I was still able to transition and, you know, have a career and, and be able to, to work in the sport. Um, when you know when you were done i think a lot of fighters have a hard time making that transition you know they they of course they love the the energy and the feel that you have when you fight and the lead up and it makes you feel alive uh, at the same time some may not be able to talk and and be able to transition their skills from just fighting into being a broadcaster or being a coach even, or, you know, that maybe they're not a great business person, you know, maybe a good coach, but not a good business person and couldn't operate, uh, you know, an academy or, or a gym, you know? So I think that a lot of fighters, you see them disappear and then they come back and they disappear and come back because there's a big payday on the table and they either need the money or they want, they want that, uh, that bump again that, that you get when you fight. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of Vitor Belfort, and I, I, I truly feel that someone's going to have to tell him it, it's time for him to walk away. Um, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong saying this. I just feel he's Bellator bound within a year um, that he fights out. You know, one fight left on his UFC deal, and he ends up in Bellator. But I, he's one of those guys that you watch recently, and 
you do wonder with, with guys like Vitor and other guys in a similar type situation where you know they're getting up there in age and and they and they're losing several fights in a row, whether there is truly someone around them that is telling them you need to walk away. I mean, I, I think we think of the Chuck Liddell situation where Dana White's like, "Look, man, you're my friend. I, I can't let you go in there anymore." You know, and, and that's a, and and just as a fight fan, you hate to see that where there's no one around the fire telling him it's time to, to call it a career because you have to look out what's best for your health. You see these guys and they start getting hit and their knees wobble and they drop and guys that have been solid as a rock for years and then suddenly they're getting knocked out right and left and you know, you saw it of course with Chuck Liddell and people don't realize that. Just because you know they get out right then, it doesn't mean that it's all good. You, know, you saw with Gary Goodridge, you, you see what's happening to these athletes, you know, even other sports football and so forth. The neurological disorders don't come along for another 10 or 15 years. So, you know, not only do you have to get out, you, you got to get out before you start dropping like that. You, you've, that's already a sign of some serious problems. Um, on the horizon. So I, I 100% agree with it. And of course that goes right along with, with the weight cutting issue uh, that we talked about. You know, the GSP just posted something talking about people, some, you know, somebody's going to die eventually weight cutting. People have already died, you know, with the weight cutting. And, and again, it's because of what it does to your brain when your brain is dehydrated, you know, there's no cushion there. So when you get hit, you know, it rattles, you know, in your skull like a marble. And it's it's not a good thing. Yeah, I'll tell you, I was actually watching. I don't know if you've seen the documentary The Hurt Business. It's now on Netflix, and Gary Goodridge is on that. It's tough to watch. I mean, you just and, and I know Access TV has done a thing on Gary, and uh, you know, and that's kind of the untold stories about MMA is you know what happens to fighters. You know, um, you know, Joker Guyman had a, a part in this documentary where he talks about is you know he goes, hey, you got you get knocked out. One week later, fans don't know what's going on with you. They don't know, you know, if you're back training or, or you're back in the hospital. But yeah, it is it is a problem. And I think, you know, we, we on the regulatory side, I, I, there there's some states I really truly wonder if they're evolving as the sport grows. And you know, and weight cutting is one of those things. I think weight cutting is one of the top three or four issues right now in the sport. Would you agree? I, I think so. I, I think it's especially for the health concerns and so forth. Uh, you know, it, it's, you know, testing the hydration levels and things like that, like to, you know, the bottom line is every fighter wants an edge and weight cutting was the first, you know, true, you know, edge. If, a, you know, a wrestler's going into mixed martial arts, they already knew how to cut weight you know, tremendously well. And they were cutting weight and stepping onto the mats direct, you know, right afterwards. They weren't given that 24 hour rehydration period. But they also weren't getting popped in the head. They weren't getting punched. And so, you know, now, you know, you know, people are always going to look for that edge. They're going to look to get better and better at every facet. And weight cutting is, is one of those things. If you're 20 or 25 pounds heavier, it's a little bit different than just standard kickboxing because that wrestling, it gives you so much more size and strength. And in a sport where getting on top and holding someone down it, it scores, you know, for, you know, for, you know, in, in the rounds, you know, that that's a tremendous advantage, especially in mixed martial arts. 
Yeah, you know, it's uh, you know one of the things that's likely going to be voted on in July is the additional weight classes, and there are some people in the industry that are for it. There are some people that are against it, and I think that there's people in the UFC that are not exactly completely on board with what the Association of Boxing Commission and Combative Sports wants to do, and, and essentially what it is is it's eliminating 170, adding 165, 175, and 195. And I look at 165 pounds as, I think, a division that there are so many guys you could point to and say that division would make so much sense. I look at uh, Nate Diaz as a perfect example, a guy that has to cut so much to get down to 155, isn't, that, isn't big enough for 170, so he's kind of stuck in between. Uh, David Rickles in Bellator, he's flat out told me that if they do 165, that is a perfect ideal weight class for him because he has to cut down to 155. You have to look at Khabib Nurmagomedov. Is you know is cutting down to 155 a healthy life choice for him? So is 165. But then the other part of it is, if a guy like Khabib were to fight a higher weight class, is he that same dominant fighter? Right, and you know it's the biggest thing is going to be uniformity. And, and that's we're already seeing that with with steroids and PEDs. The the thing is is it's not you know I mean UFC is is popping guys still popping guys right and left for um, for that you know for for PEDs with weight cutting or or the, is the testing going to be uniform from the low level shows you know the B and the C level shows all the way up to the top? And what I meant by the steroid thing is. You've got guys that start in these low-level shows. They're jacked out of their minds on on every substance imaginable. Never tested. There's not money for it. You know, there's no yeah. money for that kind of testing in the lower leagues. So they're jacked out of their mind. They're going to do whatever they want as far as their weight cutting because they're not going to have the testing for that either. So they they fight all the way up. They're knocking out these other guys who are natural that have a potential to do big things. They're knocking them out uh, of, of the of the game. Then they get all the way up to the UFC, and then the UFC says. You can't be on steroids now. We're going to test you every week if we want to and and make sure that you can't be on steroids and we're going to do this additional testing. These guys aren't prepared for that. And so they get popped right and left with PEDs and they're going to say, well, I'm going to, you know, I, I can't probably do it without it. I'm going to take the risk. I'd rather take the risk, get in there and actually fight. And if they throw me out afterwards, at least I fought in the UFC. And that's the mentality. And that's the problem. You know, I mean, you're again, you're knocking guys out. Of, of being able to be natural athletes at a high level first, then those other guys are getting knocked out at the top because they either are still on them and get busted for them or they go off of them and they're not the same athlete anymore. I'd say when it comes to you know, PD, uh, failed drug tests, nothing surprises me anymore. Um, you know, because I remember, you know, before the, the USADA era uh, of the UFC came in, into play, you know, you heard, you know, the numbers of what, you know, fighters would privately tell you what they thought the amount of fighters were on PEDs. For you, as someone with all of your involvement, are you still surprised by the, I think it's 5% of the UFC roster currently is suspended due to PED failed test? I'm not surprised at all. And the the thing is that when you're, when you are, I mean, the, some of the greatest champions, the, the biggest names have all tested positive and they're still respected. That's the thing, you know, it's and and like I said, I'm not taking a stance on it, but I'm saying, you know, you've got your Josh Barnett's, you've got your Chael Sonnen's, all of these guys that are major authorities in mixed martial arts, they've all popped. 
and yeah. nobody even thinks about it. Nobody, you know, it's oh they popped, you know, and and then you know you've got other people, you know, uh, standing on a soapbox talking about how bad it is, but nobody cares. You know, it's not like Barry Bonds and Sarah, uh, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire in baseball. You know, people now they enjoy people enjoy seeing a better fight. People watch Pride, and those guys were juiced to the gills every time. You know, all of them, and they were great, great fights because these guys were turbocharged. People don't care, and you can preach it and know that it's against the law, it's against the rules. You can chastise them, but in the end, the fans don't care. Chael Sonnen, I love Chael Sonnen, but he, you know, he he popped repeatedly and. The fans don't care. They love him just as much. And so how can you really feel so bad if you're a competitor about doing it when your idols all did it and they're still doing just fine? You know, and I think their thing, and, and, and the commissions are starting to kind of come around to this, is you, you have to make the penalty for this stuff so severe that it's going to get people to question. I mean, you think about what, two two, three years ago, you know, you could pop for steroids and you're only looking at a nine-month suspension. That didn't necessarily scare guys away. You know, and, and now with weight cutting, you know, California is, is trying to put through their what they want to do, which personally I, I feel that no commission should ever profit from a guy missing weight or, 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 or a girl missing weight that, you know, if whatever that fine may be, it should go to their opponent. And, you know, we, we've seen this situation happen so many times and, um, I remember it was probably about a year, year and a half ago. I had heard there was some talk of maybe trying to get the the standard fine raised from twenty percent to fifty percent of that purse. I've seen fifty percent fines for weigh-ins, but I, I mean, I think that's probably a way you you would help limit. Um, you know, maybe you know fighters maybe deciding, oh man, you know this cut's been getting bad. I'm not going to try to cut the additional one or two pounds. You want my story? Of, of, you know, I had a, a fighter that competed in Bellator. He actually, Nate Jolly, he actually fought Marcin Held at the the event you were yeah. talking about earlier with Shemeko and, and uh, Tito. And um, but this was a, the fight he had after that. And um, we were we went in. It was a very very tough weight cut. Um, we were in the the hotel, and his opponent was also cutting weight in the next room. And uh, I, I believe that Nate was about. Three and a half pounds off. We were doing the the whole hot tub thing and, and and so forth, and his opponent was about three pounds or so off too. So they got a, you know, got a little powwow going, and we were like, "We, we want to just cut it off right there." We went to Dean. Dean was like, "Man, this was a time when a lot of fighters had been missing weight, and and they didn't want catch weights going on." And Dean said, "You know, told, told myself and Nate, you know, you you want to maintain the the rest of your." Uh, uh, of your contract, then you're going to make weight. Well, you know, Nate's opponents said, forget that dude. I'm, I'm dying here. Nate jumped in the hot tub, finished the next three pounds. Uh, he felt horrible. You know I mean? He was, you know, staggering. It was very borderline dangerous at that point. We, um, we, we have the fight. He, he performed in the first two rounds, fell apart in the third round, made the distance, um, lost the decision, uh, and then was cut immediately from Bellator. So, you know, it, it's uh, it was very disappointing, and I'm not dissing Bellator. I'm not. This is not a. You know, obviously, you you make a con. You you agree to a certain weight. Um, you you're contracted to do such. Then you go and you do it. You know, and then and Nate was being a man by making it. Um, but at the same time, he he made uh, maybe three two or three hundred extra bucks. Um, got it. Got it from his opponent. 
because he made weight and his opponent did not. That that money didn't do anything for him, you know. I mean, it it, it just was what it was. So um, that that's just a story to kind of, you know, encompass what we're talking about here. You know, it's it's very unfortunate sometimes how things play out, and that you know even you know you you're you're urged by these promotions to do this, you know, if you want to maintain your spot on the show. You know, it's interesting because we had an interesting conversation last week before you started taping the Valor Hour about Mackenzie Dern. And, you know, it, it ultimately is, is you know, that she has a 120-pound catchweight matchup. And, and I think people are kind of wondering, you know, is she a 115-pound fighter or is she maybe truly 125-pound fighter? Which, you know, Ed Soros came out and, and said that initially this was a 115-pound fight. But before any fighter stepped on the scale that, you know, there was an agreed-upon catchweight bout. And I, I don't want to speak for you here, but basically the conversation was is you were like, look, she didn't miss weight because – Ultimately, what the contract of weight was, she made. If, if you can agree to it before the matchup, then it's agreed upon. And that's that, in my opinion. I, I, I think a lot of people make a story out of the weight-cutting thing, sometimes because there's nothing else to really talk about. And I'm not a person who is super, super impressed when somebody kills themselves to cut 25 pounds. It's, it's a challenge. Don't get me wrong. If you're able to do it, um, it's challenging, but it's not necessarily something that is a positive thing. It is a good thing because it's so dangerous. And like I said, when you dehydrate the brain and, and you continually do it, you think you're okay, but then you, you know you don't know what you're doing to your heart, to your brain, and and so you know it may be better that that some of these fighters make the choice, the, the conscious choice, to say. I mean, I'm just going to fight up, and if I can't handle it, I can't handle it. You know, and I'll tell you this, you know, Frankie Edgar, look at Frankie Edgar. Everybody from the start said, oh, he's too small. He's too small for lightweight, and he wins the title. Yeah. He holds the world title, and then they're saying, no, yeah, but he's, but he's just too small for, 40, for 55. Take him to 45. Did he ever regain the title at 45? No. Some people are just better fighters being the, the David and the David Goliath scenario. If you can have all of your attributes at a smaller frame, a smaller size, you know, maybe you're better off that way because your conditioning is going to def is certainly going to be better. Your ability to use all of your attributes is going to be better. And sometimes it's better to go that way. You know, like I said, I'm not really, I'm not standing on a soapbox here either in saying that, you know, that things need to be a certain way. I just, you know, I don't necessarily always think that, that the weight cutting is a news and, and, and people are, you know, are, man, that's so crazy. He's he, he loses 30 pounds. And it's like, well, that's great. You know, that's great that he can he can pull a parlor stunt like that. But, you know, is it really the, the defining characteristic of the sport? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms from the media side, the reason a lot of the stories get written is ultimately because they get clicks. You know, right, that's I mean, that, that's I mean, at the end of the day, that that's the business we live in is you are you are trying to maximize the amount of clicks, whether it's a written article, it's a, a video interview or it's a podcast. You're trying to, to maximize those clicks. And, you know, I've always talked about this is you want to you, you write a story about every fighter passing a drug test. It literally will get very minimal web hits. But <laughs> yeah. fighter fails that drug test. Oh, it goes through the roof, you know. It's yeah. just, and, and it's just it's and there's a lot of times as a reporter you think of of certain things that's going to draw well and, and they don't draw well. 
Um, but you know, for me, I always try to take a different approach. That's why I try to try to talk to guys that you know are on the regional scene that are working their way up, you know, and trying to to give a, to give a different angle. I for me as a reporter, I guess my my way of reporting is probably a lot different than a lot of other reporters. Where I think there's a lot of reporters that it's I've got to talk to that UFC guy or now now Bellator is kind of starting to get to that point. But to me, I've always been like, let me go find that story that no one's hearing from, you know. And you know, it's like you know, Tyron Woodley had a, a great comment uh, the other week, and, and basically, you know, he's talking about you know, sell my story, and, and basically, question of, hey, why isn't the UFC selling? Hey, I'm a guy who came from Ferguson, whatnot, and you know, sometimes as a reporter, we have to find out those stories of what makes a fighter a fighter. Yeah, well, and, and that's true, and, and it, it, it's a riddle. The whole sport and the whole scene is a riddle. One thing I think that also will make you stand out differently is that you are also a commentator, and being a commentator and truly analyzing what's going on inside the cage, learning to verbalize that, um, it, it gives you a different perspective of, of really what's going on as well. And um, like I mentioned, you know, I, being a coach, being a th- Fighter, those are two different perspectives. You know, when you're watching someone else fight, it's you know you have no control over it, uh, but you want them to win, and you've worked with them on certain things. You know, it's it's a different type of of anxiousness than when you're in there doing it yourself. But then on top of that, when you have, you know, no dog in the race, and you're just talking about it and you're analyzing what's going on, and you're seeing what what portions of the fight that you enjoy and what you like, it, it definitely you know breaks down differently, and you know, and so that that may be a difference in well as well in what you do. Yeah, I mean, and from the commentating aspect, you know, one of the, you know the two guys I personally love to listen to is Brian Stan and Dominic Cruz, um, in terms of UFC broadcasters because they have a way of communicating things where not just a hardcore MMA fan knows what's going on, but they have a way of communicating where. That person who is just the casual sports fan who isn't watching MMA all the time, they know what's happening. And that's, you know, I, I remember when I started my broadcasting career doing doing uh, play-by-play for football, uh, my boss at that time, he said to me, he goes, look, not everyone knows what a will linebacker is. You got to explain what that is. No one, everyone doesn't know all the termino- terminology that, you know, maybe you're shouting to you know, a guy that you're training, whether it's in the gym or in the corner. And, and that's probably one of the hardest things about being a commentator in a sport is is talking in a way that people understand what's really going on. Yeah, and every single time as well. You know, if I, I you know, we do, I work with Valor, you know, often a couple times per month. We do an event a couple times per month, and I'm going to have to always remember as a color guy, as an analyst. To, to always explain everything each time because you never know if it's a new viewer and someone that's never watched MMA at all, and, and it's my job to do that. And it's easy to get caught up in the fights and forget that. Yeah, it is. You know, and, and uh, you know, and look, we we all get excited when we're watching fights. It's uh, it's tough when you're calling fights, you know, not to to kind of go over the top. And you know, I mean, sometimes I mean, it, it I believe you've been put in a situation where you've had to call a fight where that's a guy that's in your gym. Um, I, I've had some guys that work in my gym. I typically there, – there are a few guys that, that I work with, Nate Jolly, Preston Schick, who's going to be on Valor Fights 41. Uh, I step away from the booth to, to work with those guys in corner. Uh, but there are a lot of guys that come in. This is sort of a – the, the place that I that I train our gym, we get a lot of guys from other gyms that kind of roll in and and, and work with us. Um, Adam Townsend, you know, trains a lot with us, and you know, he just had that big LFA fight. 
Um, he'll come in and train. Um, Sarah McMahon has been down to train with us. Um, um, you know, there's all of these, you know, these different, um, these different fighters, they'll come in and I, I love working with them all and, and, and being able to, you know, maybe, you know, touch on their game and maybe enhance something and help out. But, um, but you know, I, I typically, um, you know, with Adam, I, I will corner usually, but with a lot of the guys, I don't corner, I, I do call it, but it gives me some extra insight into the fight. And, uh, you know, and so that's good, you know, so I, I really know who I'm looking at and what they're doing. And, and so it may be, you know, oftentimes it'll help me, uh, when I'm calling the action. Now, of course, uh, you're a promoter as well. You, you mentioned about team MMA battle and, uh, up, there's a lot of perceptions, but what what is the reality of what Team MMA Battle is that you think that people don't understand about it? Well, it's, it's it was a five year journey, man. You know, originally we started w- watching it on in Russia when it was Hip Show, and it was crazy, and it, we the it was a viral video that showed a guy you know hit a double leg on his opponent, and they dropped you know ten feet down to a, you know from an obstacle down onto the to the floor, the padded floor. And it got you know millions of views and so forth. And I was working a, a, a mixed martial arts like TV show called MMA Inside the Cage at the time. And we were going all over the world. We went to Australia and to, to Europe and all these different places. And we would kind of do an Anthony Bourdain kind of you know uh, different t- you know tastes of mixed martial arts and of combat sports as a whole. I hate to say mixed martial arts because then people start you know tagging me about it, but um, we we saw this and we we brought it here. Eventually, we got it onto Access TV for a special uh, show, but it was it didn't really translate at the time. It was hard. The, the rules were kind of touchy. There, there were there was a lot more to it. And once we brought it here, we really had to do a lot of refining to change the rules to evolve them. Over the last three years, that's what we've done. And essentially, what Team MMA Battle is is the it, it's the evolution of watching how two fighters would fight and taking, uh, you know, you know, adding their partner and their teammate together to see how four guys, you know, two on two would would operate collectively in a fight. What we've also done, though, is limited the ground portion of the fight to 10 seconds. And the, the reason for that is that nobody wants to watch two guys grappling over here and two guys grappling over here across from the you know across the room from each other? Nobody wants to see that. It, it, they want to see the the action, the movement. It, it's it's not a direct translation to mixed martial arts, but it is a very exciting next level of combat sports. You you get to see all of the almost football like exchanges. Between the fighters, you know, one guy hits, the other guy dog piles in, pulls the other guy off. I don't know if you've watched the, the highlight reel. But, I, I, you know, I, I'll tell you, I was watching the highlight reel this morning. You know, and, and I guess, you know, when this this came about, my first thought was, okay, what happens if it ends up being two-on-one? What, what's that different than just being a beatdown on the street as opposed to, you know, a, a competition? But I'll tell you, one of the things that I think is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, and, and the, the highlight video I saw was from Flow Combat. Where a guy is being uh, is in a rear naked uh, rear naked choke, and then another guy comes in and starts punching him in the gut. Okay, so let let me explain how 
everything is set up here. Now, firstly, BJPenn.com reported that we had a two-on-one match, that one guy didn't show up for the team, and so they that, so they, they sanctioned a two-on-one fight, which was 100% false. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is what's happening. It's a two-on-two fight. One man is eliminated. One man is knocked out, whatnot. He's eliminated. That fighter then chooses the, – the lone fighter chooses – I, I surrender, I'm done, or okay. I've got one more chance. I can survive for 60 seconds against in a two-on-one situation in this 40-by-40 40 40 area with obstacles that you can move around, run. At any point, he can tap his leg and be done. Any point. He can bow out before it starts, right? Mm-hmm. We have three referees observing three competitors. In our last event, we had four surgeons two neurosurgeons and two uh, highly acclaimed plastic surgeons on hand. Um, and at any point, if these fighters are, you know, can't defend themselves, they stop it. But, and also you only still are only permitted 10 seconds on the ground. So if two guys run across, you know, one guy grabs the guy, takes him down and the other guy jumps on him to, to finish him. He takes a hard shot. It's over. The fight's done. Yeah. You know, just like how is it any different than if a, um, you know, if it's a one-on-one fight and I catch you with a left hook that blindsides you, you're done. It's done. You've got three officials in there. The the fighters don't even want to do it, uh, don't have to do it, but it is what it is. It, in true reality, there's nothing different as far as safety is concerned in that situation every one of the guys that ended up in a two-on-one situation loved it they loved the chance because if they get past that 60 seconds uh-huh. depending on the scoring they go to a one-on-one one single one-on-one mma round and they can come back and win and that has happened before i spoke with john mccarthy and we and there was a big row with john mccarthy about this i met john at the abc meeting that and i presented this in front of all of the commissions back in 2015 there were some concerns when it was arena combat because there were elevated obstacles, the falls, and that's that was the big concern. And when I, when I actually went on his podcast with Sean Wheelock, his issue wasn't with the two on one. He, he didn't he he didn't say oh it's too dangerous. They, he he said that it would maybe unfair that a good jujitsu guy they would never be able to to stop two good jujitsu guys from subbing the other guy, but. In a two-on-one situation, they, he said, you know, you've got three referees. You can get in there and stop that. That's not a big deal. Their problem was with the elevated obstacles. And when working with the commissions following that, we, we did evolve that. We, we now – everything mm-hmm. that we do is based is ground-based. We don't have anyone climbing up on anything. You know, you relate to cheerleading. Cheerleading is the number one cause of death in high school sports, like mm-hmm. the stunning and that sort of thing. And those guys aren't trying to throw someone off of a, you know, of a platform. And so, it, so we evolved. I evolved this sport to work with the South Carolina Athletic Commission and the other commissions that we are we are we are pending and we are working with right now. And the the sport has evolved into something that is very exciting. That fans are ravenously crazy. If, if you watch the fans outside, you know the cage. They're they're going nuts because they've never seen anything so fast. It's like you've got it on fast forward, man. So John McCarthy had no problem with any of that. His problem was when I said, "Oh, there's only 10 seconds permitted on the ground. If you want, you know, if you've got a problem with, you know, a boring fight, turn over and watch, uh, you know, Team MMA battle. You know, you're not going to have any of the issues where guys lay on." on the ground and, and, you know, and, and they're down there for, you know, three or four minutes, not doing anything, you know, this is, you know, a different sport that will allow you to, to enjoy all, you know, a different aspect. 
And then, of course, his his fanboys jump down my throat. This is not <laughs> MMA. You don't you you don't love the sport. You hate the sport. And it's like, dude, the sport doesn't care nothing about you. I'm gonna tell you that right now. I love. I'm a martial art. I love the the. The, the the people involved i love the martial arts i love but but the sport is as dirty as it gets it's as dirty as the people involved with it so to say sport you know that's you know the the sport of mma and it in you know in unified rules it's john mccarthy's baby that's his baby he mm-hmm. loves it he, yeah. he just posted something about ufc2 you think ufc2 wasn't more dangerous than my sport and he's nostalgic about it you know good for him good for him that he got that but man don't be curbing everybody else's dream and you know he'll say well it's not mma well the south carolina commission they sanction it as mma i'm not saying it's mma i'm saying it's a faction of mma based around what the south carolina commission says another commission may say something differently but that's what it is if if another commission wants to say hey this is a completely different sport we're going to sanction it we're going to run it as as this sport then fine but all I was saying is, is you say it's not MMA. I'm saying it's sanctioned as MMA. It is what it is. Don't don't make it a you know a, a an issue you know verbiage an issue. And it doesn't make me a bad person or a betrayer mm-hmm. of MMA because I want to do something. I want to continue to evolve. Combat sports is meant to evolve. You know, it's not you know meant to to go in and become you know your your standard MMA. And then say, well, no more. This is the way it has to be. That's the same as the boxing people back in the in the nineties. The way they said to, uh, about MMA. I mean, let's be honest about it. I, I'm not going to sit here and call out names in particular, but there are people on the regulatory side that I just don't think want to evolve. Where I do think there are commissioners out there that that want to evolve. Um, I, I, you know, I have to think that when you sit down in front of executive directors, commissioners of commissions, it's kind of like old school MMA where you're walking that meeting and you've got people with their arms crossed and basically you're, you're essentially a salesman essentially to try to convince them that, Hey, this is, this is the evolution of, of combat. You, you know, if it's safe and the competitors want to do it and that's something that we've strived for, then let them do it. Don't, don't, you know, and, and this is the thing, man. And I've been in there. Like I said, I walked into the Tennessee Athletic Commission, or what was about to be the commission, it was basically just the legislation at that point. And I sold mixed martial arts because I was I was promoting in Virginia. We couldn't promote in Tennessee um, due to tough man, due to tough man. Someone was killed in tough man, so they banned all combat sports except for boxing. And so it was another two years before we were able to get in, get this thing, you know, you know, lobbied and and, and make it work. I went there with my lawyer. And in a, in a you know um, Dave Ferguson from West Tennessee, a, 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 you know a, a lot of names you know in the state of Tennessee. They we all went there and we joined forces, and we got this thing passed. We got mixed martial arts passed in 2008. I promoted the first sanctioned show in the state of Tennessee, October 4, 2008, and you know that was a it was a huge accomplishment. It was you know it was great. You know, the boxing guys that were on the commission, they were down in it. They were like, this is a blood sport. This is awful. This is, you know, and they, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's, it's not a secret. Now I come in to do the same thing. And these snobby MMA people with their noses up in the air act like that they're too good for my, my sport, it's, that, that it's too dangerous, that it's, you know, it's not worthy of consideration. 
Come on, man. Don't be hypocrites. What, what you know, is, seriously. One of the things I found interesting while I was watching that uh, highlight video is they're all wearing headgear. Is that, was that done for a certain reason? It, I, I think that it was originally done over in Russia um, for safety, for perception. Um, I think that it, it does help, especially helps with cuts. The biggest thing is, is it allows the referees to keep track of who's who. Okay. And, and so that's, that's a big thing because guys are going back and forth. They're moving around. They're scoring points. And uh, so it's difficult to see who's on who and what's going where, you know. So when you have, the, you know, the different, the different colored uh, headgear and, and, and it's, it's set up that way, it allows you to keep uh, uniformity uh, in the sport because it's, you know, it's very confusing if you've never been involved with it before if you're not used to calling these these events you really have to be on top of your game and that's one thing that you know we we've worked a lot with with these referees to continue improving and getting better and you know this last event there were you know a, a missed call there were a few you know but they were never based around safety concerns in other words they always erred on the side of safety they stepped in and stopped it so nobody got hurt but sometimes there were, there were a couple instances where you know maybe you know one of the fighters didn't get the points that that they deserved and that's something we have to continue to improve on but once we've gotten the safety issues out of the way what is your problem with it if, yeah. if 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 that's the case, then there there's not a true reason that that you can you can down me. And like I said, I'd love to talk to Big John because you know what? I, I love Big John. I, I've yeah, I've been a fan of his for many many years. But but what he's talking about, just you know, he he essentially writes a a, a tweet that basically when I when I said okay, it's it's MMA because it's you know, sanctioned as such by definition it is. He says you can wrap a, a dog turd in aluminum foil, and it doesn't make it a uh, doesn't make it chocolate. It doesn't make it a candy. And I'm like, man, that's uh, that's a little harsh, don't you think? You know, I mean, this is something I really care about. And you get to a point where you're very knowledgeable, Big John, but you're not as knowledgeable about my sport as I am. You know what I'm saying? The United States is a big old country. When it went to Vietnam, it couldn't get the job done because they, it was on Vietnam's turf. You know what I'm saying? This is the same thing here, man. I may not know everything that Big John knows, but I know my sport. And I know my sport better than he knows my sport. And if instead of, you know, making, you know, popping off one-liners, maybe he would listen a little bit. And, you know, it's been a year and a half, a lot of evolution in that time. I actually listened to a lot of suggestions that he made. You know, he didn't have a problem with it then. He said, hey, you know, this guy, if he stays with it, he's probably going to make something out of it. Well, I'm making something out of it. No, no, don't, don't be down on me, brother. When's the next event? We're looking at uh, June. Um, that's when Flow Combat, you know, we're on Flow Combat. Um, we actually have an eight-fight deal with them, which is really cool as, you know, as, as an option. That'll never you know, happen. Really, man, it, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in combat sports, matchmaking particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, the setup of the event, because the, the arena is so big. We call it the arena, uh, the battleground, the, the big cage, 40 by 40 with obstacles. It's uh, it's so difficult uh, to move the thing and set it up. I mean, it takes takes extra time. So it's a tremendous endeavor. But yeah, I mean, imagine this, man. Matchmaking isn't easy. But imagine getting two guys willing to fight together, and then you've got to get all four guys to agree to fight each other, and then you got to make sure none of those guys get hurt. And you know, you've, when you've got you know a certain amount of time, you know, before the event, like a week time, that you have to have your card secured. 
you put that thing together and then you bite your fingernails, <laughs> you know, until the event comes because you just know somebody's twisted their ankle or they've done something and they're going to be out. And when they're out, they're out. I ended up with five fights. I mean, the thing, and, I, uh, the thing I look at is it's hard enough to match to make a one-on-one match, you know, to try to make sure, you, you know, you're putting on, you know, guys who, you know, are equal, you know, talent level. But going two-on-two, I mean, that, that, I mean, I, I can't imagine how tough that is. It's, it's beyond tough. It is the most challenging thing I've ever done. And I, I, I say this all the time. I, I call um, uh, uh, Tim Loy uh, the, uh, the Da Vinci, uh, Leonardo Da Vinci of, of promoting. You know, I mean, he, he <laughs> consistent. It's beautiful. It's the Sistine Chapels. He's, it's beautiful. I'm the Picasso. Okay. I'm, you know, you take a look at it and you're like, what am I really looking at here? But it's art and it's beautiful. And the longer you look at it, the more it starts to unfold. And that, you know, with team MMA battle, that is the case. You know, I, uh, I'm a, I'm a, someone who really needs a challenge. And honestly, this little beef that I had that popped up with John McCarthy, I need that kind of stuff too, man. When somebody tells me, you know, no, that, and they make fun of something that I do. I was a bully. I got bullied when I was a kid really bad. And, and so a lot of times it takes somebody, you know, bullying me a little bit to get me fired up. And I need that sometimes, you know, and some people are just that way. And, and I've learned to, you know, maybe take the, you know, the negative, you know, of my youth and turn around and make it a positive. And I've accomplished a lot of things because of that. And, you know, it, it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a famous UFC fighter. Not everybody knows me, but my goal was never to be a famous person. My goal mm-hmm. was to enjoy being in this sport and make a living out of it, which I do, and to do things that people haven't done before. And, you know, to teach that to my daughter and, and instill that in my daughter that, you know, you know, don't fight for everything, you know, if it's not a good cause, but if, if you believe in it, do it, you know, do it. Yeah, when, when it comes to social media, sometimes I just, you know, you, you know, especially doing a podcast, you know, you're going to make comments that aren't going to make people happy. You just got to kind of tune them out. You know, I, I think for you and not, not speaking for you, but I think you'd rather, you know, John pick up the phone and, and call you personally and where you can have a conversation about what you're doing and why you believe in this product. Well, I'd like that. But I, at the same time, I don't care if he, he pops off on Twitter either. He's talking about me. You know, if you're talking about my sport, I, I know that if I, if you're talking about my sport and, and you're dogging it and you give me an opportunity to go face to face and discuss it with you, I'm going to beat you mm-hmm. because I've done it for the last five years. Any any detraction you're going to throw at me, I'm already I'm going to have an answer for it. I'm already because I've spent the last three years, you know, troubleshooting this thing. So I, I'm not afraid of that. I, I, I like for people to to actually, you know, come after me a little bit, especially in a public forum. Um, but at the same time, you know, if, if, if you don't have a good comeback, you know, uh, you know, dog turd in a, uh, in a gold foil isn't really the, the answer. I don't think, <laughs> you know, I think that, um, you know, again, picking up the phone and saying, Casey, what, what are you doing here, man? What, what is this? I'm, I, I got a little bit of heat back, you know, because again, he posted, you know, the UFC, the second UFC, uh, poster right after they retweeted it. Those were the glory days and all that. And I was like, Oh, the first, um, gold foil covered dog turd, yeah. you know, and not, not people didn't like that. I was like, well, dude, that's your baby. Of course you didn't like it. And I don't like it either. You know, yeah. so don't, don't be that way. Uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, you mentioned you're, you're obviously in the gym training guys. What, what's, what's the biggest topics in the gym right now? Is it just kind of what the, the everyday matchups that are being made? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's all different, man, because we have, so 
many different people in the gym. We have, you know, some people that never want to fight. We've got some tremendous BJJ guys that, you know, never fought MMA before, but could be amazing. But they just don't want to do it. You know, a lot of people just, it, it's a, it, you know, I, I, you know, everybody has their their own religious beliefs. But to a lot of people, that this acts like the fellowship in, in like a church, or you know, it, it's a it's a special place for a lot of people. And so the the big thing is, I keep everything out of you know every all real politics or racial this and that we have none of that in our gym none of it yeah. i mean when you go in that place everybody's equal if you're you know a, a street cleaner or if you're a lawyer or a doctor or whatever you're the same and that's what a lot of people can't get that's what makes it so beautiful to me so whether and whether you're winning or you're losing you know we're, we're together uh, as a, as you know, as a family, and so that that's really the biggest thing. If you want to say what's the biggest topics, well, obviously Conor McGregor. You know, everybody's <laughs> talking about, especially kids. <laughs> so uh, you know, we get that, and and we talk about you know Stephen Thompson was a big deal. I worked with Stephen Thompson um, back in um, you know the late nineties and two thousand. I was a instructor, uh, grappling instructor for Upstate Karate, so I worked a lot with Stephen. I don't, I think there might have been one guy there before, but as a whole, uh, I was you know. His first grappling instructor. Um, I was there when when uh, Carlos Machado married his sister, and you know I was in uh, in Ray in a lot of ways treated me like a son, and um, you know it was uh, you know and that was years before. I, I honestly I never thought that that Stephen would be a uh, would be a UFC fighter. You know he was a, a, just a kickboxer. He was only 16, 15, 16 years old, and at that time nobody would uh, would fight him, not even grown men. And I, I just always thought that he would be. A kickboxer and that's all he sort of cared about at that time i mean he took grappling classes and and he trained but you know that's that was where he was making his mark that was when that world combat league was was making a big deal where they were in the bowl and and all that and and so um but to see him do what he's done is tremendous and i will always say that the kid you know i know teron kind of came out and said he was kind of a you know he was fake or whatever that his kindness was fake and that's not true at all. That that's one guy uh, that I can always say that you know has a good heart and everything that he says and the positivity that he brings out um, is 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 tr- genuine. He's a good good kid, and uh, he's not a kid anymore, you know. But <laughs> but at the time he was a kid, and, and I actually fought my first mixed martial arts fight. Uh, he headlined it as, in a kickboxing match, my first MMA fight. So um, that we so we talk a lot about what Stephen Thompson. We were hoping he would be the the world champion. Um, after the fight last week, and you know, everybody, please give give him and, and Teron Woodley a break, man. I mean, they uh, the first fight was great because they made mistakes. They both knew going into the second fight how dangerous it was. You got to be smart. You know, Teron did what he had to do to hold on to the title, move on, and make exciting fights elsewhere. Um, sometimes your body and your um, when your fight or flight kicks in, you do what your body knows you need to do, and sometimes it's boring. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing that. Um you know, going forward with Tyron Woodley, it's I, I think he has to understand. And I hope his management has kind of you know said this to him is the fact of you know the way that second fight played out will likely hurt him in his next fight in, in terms of you know being a pay per view seller. Which I qu- would not be surprised if if the UFC has Tyron Woodley headline a Fox card, and it's gonna, and it's going to depend on how many pay per view buys ultimately UFC two hundred nine did because. You know, I've heard you know Woodley say, "Oh, I'm going to have some leverage," and I'm like, "Well, we got to wait and see it. if that pay per view did not do well. He doesn't really have leverage." Yeah, I mean, and like I said, though, there's nothing he can do about it. 
I mean, you know, I mean, I mean Connor's really. I mean, Connor and Ronda Rousey are really the only fighters that have leverage when it comes yeah. to the UFC. Well, you know, I mean, he has a lot more leverage than you know the guy walking off the street that, oh, yeah. that gets their first shot in the UFC. And you know, I, I don't feel sorry for him, and I don't know that he's losing a whole lot of sleep. You know, because he does have the belt around his waist, and you know he he made more money in in this last fight probably than most people have ever seen in their whole life, mm-hmm. and, um, and especially in the sport particularly, and um, you know it, it is what it is, and and I think that you know the end of the day, you know he still got the belt around his waist, and that's better than have you know truthfully it's better than to have lost it, and uh, you know I, I, if he does, and it's going to depend on who he fights. You know, he's not considered necessarily, one, you know, one of the most exciting. But if he fights somebody that, that makes exciting fights and he has the belt, you know, he's the heel. He's the villain, you know. And so he will be headlining, you know, and he will be a, a big deal. Yeah, it's, you know, and it kind of leads into the UFC matchmaking. And I think for a lot of fans, I think the fans are down on the matchmaking of the UFC uh, you know, right now, you know, people, you know, you look at the Bisping GSP matchup, you know, there, there's some other cases where, you know, I think fans are kind of down, but I guess as a business, I, I understand what the UFC is doing. Well, the UFC is not a sport and that's what people got to get through their head. And that's when, you know, when people are telling me you, you know, about team MMA battle, oh, you, you, it, it, it's bad for the sport. Well, it's not a sport because there's not a 10 point, there's not a, 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 a top 10, a, a legit top 10, like in boxing there, there isn't. You know, you you get a title shot based on how popular you are, how you sell tickets. It's a um, it's the WWE business model. It's not the boxing business model. So you can't argue it. You know, you can't argue it. UFC is what it is. I mean, it's a sport in that how it's you know, the, the fights themselves are operated. But it's not a sport in that, you know, if, if as long as I fight and I win and I keep winning, then I will one day be the UFC world champion. And that that's not the case. So, um you know, you, when you get into the sport, you understand that. That's why I said earlier, you know, when we do the post-fight interviews and, you know, I have a guy who doesn't want to do post-fight interviews and just walks off from me. Well, man, I'm here to help you. I'm here here to prepare you for later on when you, you better be able to talk your way into a fight. Mm-hmm. You know, um, otherwise you're not going to get paid. You're not going to get the opportunities. Nobody's going to want to see you. I tell you the thing I always I always hate in these post fight interviews when they go, I'll fight whoever the promotion wants me to fight. I'm like, oh come on, that's the worst thing to say. Because I, I, I heard Shel Sonnen bring this up, and I thought it was a great point. He says, if you don't care who your next opponent is, why as a fan should I care? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's a bit of an arrogance saying that I'm I'm the best fighter, so hence it doesn't matter who I fight, I'm going to make a great fight regardless but you know name recognition is is everything you know Chael is the perfect example man you know look at his win-loss record but man people still dial in on him they're gonna watch him fight they're gonna watch him fight even after this last one oh exactly it's like he said he goes you know once the fight ends the promotion for the next fight starts I mean I mean you think about I mean I mean think about you know when he was you know working his way to to get the rematch with Anderson where I want to say it was after he beat Bisbing where he pulled the line Anderson Silva you absolutely suck da 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 and that's just a perfect example of you know he talked him he talked himself in the title fights and you know and and he has become one of the most recognized MMA fighters of all time not because of his record but because of how he promoted himself Well yeah I mean he took the superstar Billy Graham quotes and he ran with them. You know what I'm saying? Like he he took the pro wrestling edge 
and he created it here. You don't have, I mean, if you're interesting, then that's it. Rowdy Roddy Piper, yeah. Rowdy Roddy Piper, he not not a great worker, you know, in in the ring. But man, he talked his way into every fight, and he made a lot of money. You know, if you're if you can talk it and you can get in there. Now, sometimes it backfires because if you if you talk a lot, you know, you might get real nervous. It can make you really nervous when you go in to actually fight. You know, now I got to back it up. Now, how am I going to feel? Honestly, I looked at Chael, and it may have been the ring rust or whatever in this last fight with Tito, and I think he just he burned up. I think that you know you get into this these these uh, verbal exchanges, and then when when you get actually get in there, you know it's not like pro wrestling where it's all pre scripted and you know it's going to flow right out the way it's intended to. You got to actually physically back it up, and and I think that you know I don't know if it was was that verbiage or that talk that did it or just the ring rust, but I think that you know you watch the fight and he's fighting, and then all of a sudden he just quits fighting and and that's not because he didn't want to fight anymore it's because your body when it fills with the cortisol and the adrenaline dump and everything like that you see the guys turn beet red flesh red you know that's a chemical reaction that's going on in your body and it makes you heavy as lead and you can't lift your arms and there's no worse feeling when you get in there and you have all of this you know skill you know in your mind and you can't use it because your body is just not working and so you know anyway that's getting off topic a little bit but you know definitely the the talk um, is is a major major portion. Are you a believer in cage rust? I think that you know when you any time that you fight in, in mixed martial arts or whatever, you um, you're doing two things. You're competing and you're all, but you're also performing. Uh, the same as if you were an actor up on stage. Imagine being an actor on stage. A lot of people get stage fright. They could fight all day, but they couldn't be an actor, you know, on a stage yeah. show. And so when you go out of, uh, you know, and you're an act, you go up on that stage and you start to act and your adrenaline dumps and you get really nervous and, you know, you're underneath the lights and all that, then you get to the cage and you got to fight. And so you've already been, um, you've already been touched by that, uh, by that nerve that doesn't have anything to do with the fighting. That, when I train fighters now, you know, I evolve them. I, you know, insist there's a process for getting to mixed martial arts. It's so dangerous. You start with, um, grappling tournaments. You're under the lights a little bit, but no, no, no real danger. You know, there. Then you move on to, a, you know, an amateur kickboxing match where you wear headgear and shin guards and you're covered up. And if you freeze under the lights, hey, you got, might get your nose busted or whatever. The referee's there to take care of you. Once you show you can do both of those, because you don't have any business fighting MMA if you can't do both. Once you show that you can do both. Now you step into the cage, and you're gonna. It's gonna be less likely that you freeze when they're wearing the, you know, the small gloves, and you know, there's there's so much more at stake, so much more going on. It's it's desensitizing fighters to the, the that reaction. So with ring rust, it's the same sort of thing. You know, if your your body hasn't experienced, you've been on the mats and you've been training, you've been fighting and all this, but you have not experienced the feeling that you get underneath the lights, and and that's. That's where that comes from, in my estimation. Yeah, I mean, for me, I remember when I, when I was my first year of college, I had to, I was in a speech class, so I had to present this speech. I, I did a thing on someone; it was related to football, and I remember I was nervous as could be getting, and that was pretty much the first time I really had to get up, get in front of people to speak. But now you put a microphone from my face; it's like no big deal. Just like, oh, yeah. cool. I mean, but it's, but we all grow from it, you know. We we all uh, we all learn from it. But uh, final thing I want to mention. Um, 
you know, War Machine is, is on trial. John Copenhaver uh, in, in Nevada right now for, uh, I believe he has facing 32 um, different counts to say Nevada has charged him with. But I know you had you had a chance to be around him very early on in his career. Yeah, so um, Nate Jolly, the, again, it's always bringing Nate Jolly into the mix. Um, we fought down at XFC 9 down in Tampa at St. Pete Tabs Forum. And um, I believe that was XFC nine. Um, we had a fight, and uh, War Machine fought Mikey Gomez down there the same night. Uh, had Junie Browning there with him in the corner. They were good buddies uh, at the time, and we were good buddies with with Junie. We'd known Junie for years, coming up in the Kentucky MMA scene and stuff, and so we were good friends. And uh, so after the fight, we go out, and uh, I got to you know be around War Machine. And it wasn't a big deal at that time, you know. He wasn't. Uh, uh, you know, people people recognized him, but he wasn't. You know, a, a, I'm not going to say he's a superstar now, but he's definitely, you know, he's caused a stir. You know, so I mean, it was, but you know, he was a very, uh, in my opinion, a very aggressive guy. Um, he was extremely cool to myself and to Nate, and of course to Junie. Junie's always a hoot, man. You know, Junie can get crazy, but he's actually, if, you, if you're his friend, he's a, a really good fella. And um, So we had a great time. We went out and everything. But you could see, man, if, if people came up and people, you know, as the night got later, out was the bar at the after party, if people started, you know, bumping into him or, you know, uh, you know, be it getting loud around him and stuff, you know, or if somebody bumped into me, you know, or, or to Nate, you know, and he just met us that, that night, uh, he's like, you know, he'd be right up in their face. What's up? What's up? You know, and I mean, he just is a, a super intense guy. And that's what I remember about War Machine. And, and uh, you know, it's uh, so unfortunate that the road that he's taken uh, has left him where he's at. And, you know, some people, uh, I don't know if it, there was, you know, the substances or other substances involved. But, man, um, that's a really, really, really unfortunate yeah, of course. Uh, I've been I've been following you know following the tweets of one of the reporters out there in Vegas is going on a lot of uh, a lot of disturbing details out there, and uh, we'll, we'll see what uh, I guess it probably it's it's probably more of a question of how many years he's ultimately going to be uh, locked up in prison, and uh, so we'll see what happens there. But you've got the Vow Hour coming up this week. That's going to drop on Thursday morning. Yourself and Tim Loy got to imagine uh, a lot of Vow fights forty one talk. A lot of it, and we got a lot of fights to talk about. I think we still got like 21, 22 fights, uh, and that's you know all the way from amateur down to, to the pro lineup, and you know a lot of big names, uh, you know that we're you know uh, looking to, to do big things. You know Demir Fahabagovich, who of course is Scott Holtzman's training partner, trains out the lab as well, and um, uh, Kobe Wall is in, and you know so a lot of big names, and I think it's going you know. It's definitely a future stars card, and so we're going to get really in depth into that and uh, and talk about it. And of course, anybody who um, is listening to this and, and you ever have questions, or anything you want us to touch on as far as that card, you know, tell us. Um, but I, I do believe that that card holds up to anyone, uh, in, you know, any event, uh, you know, uh, going on around the, around the nation. I think you definitely need to get that uh, subscription to to Flow Combat and and watch. So how long of a night is that for you, calling fights on Saturday night? Well, it's a long night, and my, and my wife, uh, you know, she's the ring announcer, and so uh, we, so it makes it better, you know. And and that's one thing too is that you know I had traveled internationally for, for you know for a while and, and did commentary and and so forth, and you know, and after we had our daughter, uh, and, you know, we were able to 
you know, get, you know, get it more regionally based and be able to, you know, we travel together. It's, it's almost like a date night. We travel together and, and we work together and, um, and, you know, and, and, you know, it supplements our income. Uh, but we get at the end of the day, you know, we may have to stay over, but we we're right back with our little girl and, and it's not all that international travel and stuff like that. And it's really a dream come true. Like I said, just, uh, you know, to be able to, to work together and, and, and do it on our terms and make a living doing it. It's really great. But yeah, 20, 22, 23 fights. It's going to be a, a long night. <laughs> that's, um, that's a long, that's, that's a, that's a lot of hours. <laughs> I told Tim what he, what he really should do. I mean, you look at a lot of the other promotions, man, they're putting on, you know, eight or 10 bouts, man, just cut the thing in half and sell it as two different events. Make it valid 41 and 42. Uh, you know, he definitely wants to put as many fighters on as he can because they each draw. And I think you're going to have a tremendous turnout for this event. Uh, and then, you know, we're going to be right back in uh, in May um, with the uh, the UMAF Nationals, which is going to be three days of commentary and ring announcing and, and everything else, you know, with with fighters coming from all over all over the United States. See, you know, when, so, when you tell me that, I think about all the prep work you got to put in to, uh, you know, because you want to show each fighter the same exact attention. And you, and you want to be intelligent about them. And, you know, I, I write all of the commentary notes for, for the, the events, and uh, I do a lot of research. And I know a lot of the guys already, you know, they've, I've watched them come up. But, um, but I, you know, I do all the research. I'm actually, I've been working on them tonight to really refine a lot of, of the, uh, of what's going on. But, uh, you know, I work with Vince Ferrar as well and Josh Matthews from, uh, impact mm-hmm. wrestling. Um, and, but, uh, but particularly, you know, uh, Vince is, uh, is the play by play guy and he's very good broadcaster. He works for UT football and, and, uh, you know, you know, UT, uh, sports as a whole. And so, um, you know, I, I, I will write up the, the notes and then he will come back with, you know, he, he touches on them and helps. And, and so when we work together, it's a well-oiled machine. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, we're, you know, from everything that I've seen, I think that the, the show is going to be tremendous. And, of course, that's coming up on Saturday night on FlowCombat.com. As I mentioned, you listen to Valor Hour here on Radio Influence, also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Just search the Valor Hour to subscribe, rate, and review that podcast. Casey, I appreciate you coming on. Let everyone know where they can follow you out on social media. Uh, at Casey Oxendine um, yeah, on Twitter. I've, I've been doing the Twitter thing a lot more here lately. I'm having a lot of fun with it. I never did much with Twitter before. I had my, my old Twitter handle that, you know, I had, you know, a couple thousand followers and then it got, I got locked out of, so I had to start all over. But um, you can get me there. Uh, I have an Instagram account. I put up some pretty cool stuff. At team, my team Oxendine Gym. I've got an Instagram account, so you get to see that. And then, of course, on Facebook, you can, uh, you can friend request me. Um, and uh, and follow everything there as well. I've got a, a, a you know a little fan page that I cover all of the the um, the uh, the goings on of, of mixed martial arts and, and combat sports. I kind of keep that separate from my my family account, so you can get me there and, and follow what's going on. And of course, I'll have an episode of the MMA Report uh, coming this week. No preview podcast this week as I'll be uh, taking a couple of days off, but I will preview uh, the UFC fight card. Also, World Series of Fighting's on Saturday night, a card that I think no one's really talking about. It's kind of unfortunate for the fighters on that card, but we'll preview World Series of Fighting on Wednesday's edition of the MMA Report podcast. So let's go wrap it up for this edition of the MMA Insiders podcast, which you can always hear on RadioFluence.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. This is a Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Of all the competition shows that you've done, what was the be- what was your favorite one? 
Well, I, the Bobby Flay one I just did was a lot of fun. Um, and it's a I great, did... it's a great atmosphere up there. I've judged, uh, I think four or five times up there for those guys. Again, I, I don't do the competition, but I love the judge part. So right when they, and it was such a good episode that they actually asked me back to be a judge next season, which oh, is good, pretty dude. cool. Congratulations, man. That's yeah, awesome. So it's, it's a lot of it is about just having fun and, you know, making yourself, putting yourself across in the way that you want to be portrayed and not letting, I mean, I'll tell you a behind the scenes secret about that. I, uh, you know, the intro for that thing is a big thing. It's like WWE. It's yeah. like rock concert. You know, there's smoke it's and music. It's a great cranking. studio, dude. It's a Beautiful. great set. So I had this idea with these two um, blow torches. I was going to come running out with two blow torches, flame, and they were like, no way. You're going to set the place on fire. So I f- we finally, dealing with the producers, I got them to let me come out with one that was already lit. I come out running to Bobby Flay. I give him the let's go motion. And the first time I came out, my blowtorch went out, right? So, and they're like, no, just keep going, keep going. I'm like, no way. I ran right off set. And the, you know, Bobby Flay's like, you got to come back. We're rolling. I'm like, nope, because I knew, you know, I have the power to make myself look the way that I want to, to you know, as, as good as I do. So I ran back, lit the thing up, made sure it was lit, uh, came running out, smoke, fire, you know, music, and Actually, it made the promo, so I was on every episode of Beat Bobby Flay for that whole season because it was like one of the top five entrances or whatever. There you go. But, you know, after doing it for so long, most people would just, you know, they're just sitting there listening to the director and a producer and they're doing whatever they're told. And then sometimes, you know, they don't come across, you know, they're not portrayed the way they want to because, you know, and all the, they have the creative control to make you look however you want. Yeah, it's the truth. So I, you know, I've done it enough to know that if there's something I want to come across, I'm going to make it come across. Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.